brothers and sisters this morning. I'm not wanting to ignore the elephant in the room, uh, but to address it. Because we had a business meeting this morning where we discussed and ultimately voted on the future of our church in a very real way. And so I ask each of you to take a moment and reflect upon how you're feeling this morning in light of our business meeting. What your thoughts are about the future of our church. Because the truth is, I'm sure for many of us, there's a great deal of sadness. For many of us, not all of us, uh, there's a great deal of disappointment. We may even mourn uh, what has taken place. And so we're wrestling this morning. We're struggling this morning. And frankly, as your pastor, I have shared in many of these same feelings in my own preparation for this day, in my own prayers, as I bring our church before the Lord. And so as I thought through how to bring the Word of God to you this morning, I recognized I wasn't simply going to be able to continue through Revelation as if nothing's happened. But I want to bring before you Words from Christ that continue to bring encouragement to my soul. Because it's these words of Christ give us hope. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. This morning we'll be looking at verses 13 to 19. Because I have been praying that the Lord will use this passage and these words from Christ to give our church hope in light of our business meeting as we face the months ahead filled with uncertainty about our church and our future. So, Matthew chapter 16. Let's read together verses 13 to 19. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And sister, may this provide us then with a reinsurance this morning. But before we continue, let us again draw before the throne of God together in prayer. Father, In the midst of whatever emotions we may have right now, in the midst of whatever feelings we may be struggling through, we are gathered in your presence to hear from you as your word is preached. Oh Lord, please help us to hear your word, to remain focused on your truth, that you will remove all distractions, Father, that may be here among us. 
so that we will receive this encouragement from Christ so that our souls will be blessed and so that we will live as those who've been loved by Christ even as we continue to struggle as a church in this fallen and sinful world. So Lord, please be with me as a preacher to bring these truths to Your people and that You will so be at work through Your Holy Spirit that we will be changed, that we will live with the confession of Jesus as Christ, the Son of the living God, and that we will live with the confidence in Christ that we have because of His promise to us as His church. So, Father, we pray for all these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, what does God's Word remind us of this morning? What I have seen through my own study and what has deeply impacted my heart in preparation for this morning is simply this. Because we confess Christ, may our confidence in Him endure. Because of our confession of Christ, may our confidence in Him endure. This is seen through two parts in this passage this morning. First, in our confession of Christ, as we read in verses 13 to 16. And secondly, of our confidence in Christ in verses 17 to 19. So an easy outline here this morning, our confession of Christ, and then our confidence in Christ. Let's begin then by looking at verses 13 to 16 more closely with our confession of Christ. Here we are joining with Jesus and his disciples as they go into the region known as Caesarea Philippi, which would have been in the northern uh, reaches there of Israel, close to the border of the Gentiles and the pagans. It was at the base of Mount Hernan and by the Jordan River. But what we find here is that after Jesus had called these 12 disciples to follow him, he continued with a teaching and healing ministry, which is why these men who were gathered together with Jesus had heard him preach about the kingdom of God, and they had seen him restore to health the sick and the hurting. As they were with him, they'd also watched as there was growing opposition against Jesus in his ministry from the Jewish leaders. And so now Jesus here spends some time with these disciples alone with them as a, in a kind of private retreat. And he asks them a question. He essentially takes an opinion poll here. Again, verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So it's typical in being asked an opinion poll. They give several answers, right? Verse 14, so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So they begin with recent history in light of the death of John the Baptist, but then they stretch back and continue through the prophets of the Old Testament, identifying all of them as somehow being true of Jesus. But as we hear these names, do you hear the confusion? that was present at the time. Notice they weren't necessarily rejecting Jesus' teaching or ministry here, but they saw Jesus as some kind of great prophet who was sent from God. But they were misunderstanding God's word and coming to wrong beliefs about Jesus. Why? Because those in this sinful world naturally form and fashion Jesus into our own 
image. We form and fashion Jesus into whoever we want him to be. And so for these Jews, they saw Jesus as a reincarnation of John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or another prophet. But nothing's changed today, and we do the same thing. Think of the different ways that people think of Jesus. We have Jesus as the moral example. That it's through Jesus' life we learn what it means to love. And so the, we believe in Jesus because he is the one that shows us how to live a moral life. We, we have our children come to church so that they can learn how to live moral lives. Jesus, though, is seen as a moral example. Or Jesus can be seen as an ethical teacher. Again, we look to the words of Jesus. These would be red-letter Christians, right? They, they, they look at uh, the page of the New Testament to Jesus' words and say, this is what we are to learn. This is how we are to live. Jesus then for them is simply an ethical teacher to direct and guide a proper way of living. Uh, but then there's also Jesus as the life coach. That Jesus exists for me to fulfill my dreams. Jesus is the one that encourages me to continue on my path of self-fulfillment or self-attainment. So he's my life coach. But then for others, Jesus is the prosperity giver, right? That God wants us to be successful. And so Jesus is at work to help us gain wealth and health and overcome the obstacles of life so that we will live the triumphant life in this world. Still for others, Jesus is the social reformer, right? When you look around at what's wrong in our society, the oppression uh, that we, we face, the, the immorality that is present uh, in various kinds, the way people are treated, the, uh, the, 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 the many problems, and they say Jesus is the one who is a social reformer. He is the one through which things in our society will get better. So Jesus is a social reformer. Still for others, Jesus is a political revolutionary. He came to liberate, to free, to set up a new way of living, free from a hierarchy of power of those who are equal in Christ. We should be equitable and equal because of Jesus. Because he is the one who led the way through his life and what he did, which is why we have popular entertainers, internet influencers, political pundits, next door neighbors, fellow students, and close friends who all have their different views about who Jesus is. And they are best-selling books. There are popular podcasts that offer various views of Jesus. And frankly, there are churches and denominations and Christian groups who will preach and teach different views of Jesus. So we too could take a, an opinion poll and ask in our own community, who do men say that Jesus is? But after Jesus hears the results of this opinion poll, he now directly asks his disciples in verse 15, where we read, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? He makes it personal. He directly asks his disciples, okay, in light of the, the confusion that's out there, who do you say that I am? And each of us needs to answer this question. Who do you say? Jesus is. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, one of the twelve, Simon Peter, confesses 
his faith in Jesus with the right answer, with the true answer. In verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's why this is often called Peter's great confession, or in Latin, the confessio petri. But there are two elements in this confession. First, Peter recognizes you are the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name, children. Okay? Christ is actually his title. Christ means that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He was the one God had promised to his people for their deliverance. He is the one whom God anointed as his chosen king to rule over his kingdom. And so Christ, then, we see here, is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises that God gave to Israel. And he is the anointed one who's been sent by God to free his people from their slavery to sin and to deliver us from the power of darkness and convey or transfer us into his kingdom, which is why earlier in Jesus's ministry, we read in Luke 4, where Jesus is in the Sabbath day in Nazareth, he actually applies Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 to himself. Listen to what Jesus says there in that synagogue, Luke chapter 4. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So, Jesus is the Christ. He is the one God promised to save us from our sins. To bring us into God's kingdom because we are reconciled with Him. But not only does Peter recognize Jesus as the Christ, he also goes on to say that Jesus is the Son of of the living God. As Peter recognized, Jesus has a unique relationship with God, his Father. Peter sees him as God's Son, and as the Son of God, he and the Father are united as one. So that it's through the Son we can know the Father. That, again, is what God had promised in the Old Testament through the prophet Jeremiah, that classic passage of the coming of Christ and the coming of uh, Christ's covenant, the new covenant in Christ, Jeremiah 31, 34. There we read, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Do you see then that through Peter's confession, Jesus is the Son of God who fulfills all of God's promises to save his people from the judgment we deserve and bring us into his kingdom. Which is why, upon this confession from Peter, Jesus reveals that this reconciliation will then come through his death and resurrection as our mediator. You can look down, continue in Matthew 16, look at the very next verse after this passage in verse 21. What do we read? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This, then, is the gospel message that Jesus gives to his disciples when they recognize who he is. That Jesus is willing to suffer in our place as our substitute. Jesus, this Christ, the Son of the living God, pours out His blood for us as He 
undergoes the very wrath of God in judgment for us through His death on the cross. And it's with this gospel message then that we are forgiven of our sins, that we are reconciled with God, that we do receive eternal life by looking to Christ, by believing in Him as Christ, the Son of the living God, and by trusting in His death on the cross and His resurrection to life. May Peter's confession then be shared by all of us because it's this Jesus who saves. So we too need to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So I ask you this morning, is this your confession of faith? Is your confession Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because if this is not your Jesus, then you'll be judged by God for your sin. Regardless of who you think Jesus is. Regardless of what you think your relationship with God is. Oh, believe in Christ. Believe in this Jesus who in love pours himself out for us so that we will be freed. So that we will be saved. So that we will have life forever in the very presence of God. Turn away from your sins and repentance and turn to Christ in faith, believing and trusting in Him. But you know, as we consider this confession, the truth is, it's not popular in this fallen and sinful world which lives in rebellion against God. You know, they can, they can tolerate alternative views of Jesus. as long as they can avoid being confronted with who Jesus actually is. And frankly, there are too many churches today that are willing to compromise their confession of Jesus in order to attract this world into believing in Him or to gain the respect of the world by making Jesus pleasing to their preferences and to their lifestyle. Which is why, as Christians, we too are tempted to leave this Jesus for a more acceptable Jesus. For a Jesus who is not the Christ and King over His people. For a Jesus who is not the very Son of God. Instead, looking to a Jesus that this world loves and who approves of this world's concerns. But the truth is, it costs us something to follow Jesus. It costs our very lives of sin outside of Him. So we must be willing to live counterculturally together as a church. We must be willing to suffer for His name's sake. We must be willing to endure the hostility and hatred of this world as we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. And as we do so, it doesn't mean that we won't struggle with sin. It doesn't mean that we won't struggle with doubt. After all, this same Peter goes on to reject Jesus three times when he's challenged. Three times, this same Peter who makes this great confession of faith avoids being identified with Christ by lying. 
Which is why our faith in Christ must persevere. And while I am no prophet, we are facing dark days ahead as Christ's church. We currently see religious liberties being stripped away. Christians are more and more being condemned as intolerant bigots. And upholding and defending God's Word can more likely now cause you to be sued in court or even to lose your job. So here's the question we must face. Is this our confession of Christ? And will we stand firm in this confession of Christ? Because whatever happens to this church, our confession of Christ must continue. This reminds me of something that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus in John chapter 6. You may be familiar, but there at John 6, Jesus had become quite popular. You know, he, he was feeding people, he was healing people, and, and so more and more followed Jesus until Jesus started teaching and preaching. And all of a sudden, those crowds in John 6 all turned away. Now, can you imagine for a moment how the disciples were feeling at that time? I mean, this would have been the worst of all possible outcomes. So Jesus was being successful. He was attracting a crowd. He was developing a movement. And then they all leave. And Jesus is left alone with his disciples. Imagine the disappointment. After Jesus' successful ministry, all have left. How do they respond? Think of, Jesus actually asks the twelve, Do you also want to go away? And guess who speaks up again? Simon Peter. The same Simon Peter. And what does he say in John 6, verses 68 to 69? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So in the midst of our struggles and our sadness, in our disappointment, in our confusion, in our uncertainty. May this confession remain on our lips. And may this confession be drilled more deeply into our hearts. Where else can we go? It is Christ who has the words of eternal life for our souls. So we begin this morning in this passage by seeing our confession of Christ. But then we continue in verses 17 and 19 with the second part of this encouragement from God's Word in our confidence in Christ. See, after Peter's confession, what does Jesus say? Verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus pronounces a blessing upon Peter. And why? Because of his confession of faith, which did not come from flesh and blood. Which means that we recognize here that our confession of who Jesus really and truly is doesn't depend on us. 
It's not because we're so smart or intelligent that we come to recognize these things. It's not because of how religiously devoted we are that we discover these things and gain these insights. It's not because of how we were raised that this confession is ours or where we live. But this confession of who Jesus is, this recognition of who Jesus is, is revealed to us by God, our Heavenly Father. Because He is sovereign over all things, including who will know and confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's why we're Reformed. Because in the Protestant Reformation, they recognize that God's sovereign grace is what enlightens us through the Holy Spirit, to this revelation of Jesus. But after this blessing that is pronounced on Peter, we come to the great promise of Christ to His church. There in verse 18, where Jesus says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Of course, there has been lots of debate through church history over this, right? The Roman Catholic Church says that this is when Peter becomes the first pope. Because Peter is the rock on which Christ will build his church. And since the Greek here for Peter is Petros, and the Greek word for rock is Petra, Christ is here making a play on words to speak to Peter and his role in the church. Of course, I don't have time today to fully go into this controversy, but a careful study will show that the Roman Catholic Church is here reading their doctrine of the church and the papacy into Christ's words. And they are twisting and distorting Christ's promise. But if that's not what Christ meant here, how should we understand this promise? Well, I don't think we should separate Peter from his confession or from the twelve disciples or apostles who were with him. See, it's because of his confession that Christ makes this promise to Peter. And Peter, in his confession, serves as a spokesman for the twelve who were asked this question, which is why they're also included in Christ's promise. It's why the Apostle Paul later writes in Ephesians 2.20 that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So Jesus says that on this rock, I will build my church. And what a reassuring promise Christ here gives to his church. I want to spend some time reflecting on it. Now, some advice for those of you who want to study God's word. If you really want to mine God's word for truth and for insight, one of the ways you can do it is by taking a phrase or a verse of scripture and by emphasizing each word one at a time. So that's what I actually want to do this morning briefly with this promise. Take each of the words of the promise and emphasize and, 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 and reflect on what Jesus is saying through this promise to us. So let, let, let's try that here this morning. Jesus says, I will build my church. See, it's Christ who is the one who builds this church. Not us, not our wisdom, not our efforts, not our techniques, not our programs. Christ, he is the one who builds this church. He says, I will build my church. But then let's move to the next word. Christ says, I will build my church. So as it's so often been said, the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. Because there is no doubt here of Christ's success. 
What he has begun, he will finish. What he has started, he will complete. Christ will build his church. Let's continue. Christ says, I will build my church, which means we are being built together as a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Christ isn't merely saving individuals. He is bringing us together so that we will grow into a holy temple of the Lord where God will dwell with us and we will dwell in his presence forever as the church, as his people. So we continue with this promise where Christ says, I will build my church because this church belongs to Christ. Not to me as your pastor. Not to you as the members. Because we are not our own, but we are bought with a price. We are Christ's church. We belong to him. We are his bride. We are his body. He is our, the church's husband. He is the church's head. Well, we have one more word in this promise. Christ says, I will build my church. Which means that we are a gathered together assembly. That all of those Jesus saves through all ages, in all history, in every place, among all peoples, are united together as an assembly which will one day be gathered together and united around God's heavenly throne, praising Christ for such a great salvation. And until then, Till that great day where the universal church gathers, we assemble as local churches waiting for that glorious gathering. Isn't this promise then precious to our souls? So we as a church are wrestling over closing our doors, and what does Jesus say to us? I will build my church. And after Jesus says what he will do, he goes on to say what won't happen too. Because the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against us. Now the gates of Hades here may be imagery referring to the grave as the place of the dead or to the demonic realm. Uh, but either way, a city's gates showed its strength, which is why Jesus here is promising that nothing in this world or the next, no matter how strong it may seem, will overcome the church. Because death cannot stop or end our eternal life in Christ. We have been delivered from God's wrath and hell. And Satan will not triumph over us. Do you see then how Christ's church will overcome all obstacles and all op uh, uh, opposition? Because nothing in life or death can overthrow the church. Because we are one with Christ. We are the ones through whom Christ pours out his love. So see, we can mourn if this church closes its doors. We can grieve as more and more people around us harden their hearts against Christ and sin. But brothers and sisters, we must not lose heart. Because we hold on to Christ's promise with confidence. 
And this promise then continues with a gift of Christ to His church through this age. In verse 19, where he says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Here the church is given the very keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now today, if you go to the Vatican in Rome, you'll see a statue of St. Peter who's holding these keys in his right hand, or excuse me, in his left hand, while in his right hand he's offering the church his blessing. But again, this misses the whole point of Jesus' promise. Because the keys of heaven here are given through Peter and the apostles to his church. That's why when Jesus later teaches his disciples about the importance of disciplining sinful unbelief and unrepentant sin, in Matthew 18, listen to what Jesus says to the church. Matthew 18, 18, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Does that sound familiar? And think about it. What are keys used for? You know, I, I could pull out my keys, and I, I do have keys to this building. What, what do I, when I come here in the morning, what do I do? I unlock the doors so that people can come into the, to the facility to, to join with us in worship. Keys lock and unlock doors. And so Jesus is saying here that the apostolic gospel message of salvation in Christ will open and close the doors or the entrance of Christ's kingdom. So this binding and loosing is the teaching authority that Christ has given to his apostles so that entrance into the kingdom of God comes through receiving their message of Christ and his salvation and the forgiveness of sins. But it also means when one hears this apostolic gospel message of salvation in Christ, that when you reject this message... There is no eternal life in Christ. There is no dwelling in God's presence. The gates of heaven are closed. Well, the gates of Hades are wide open. So it is through the church's ministry of the word as we've received it from Christ's apostles that we use the keys of the kingdom. And these keys are not given to any other organization or people. The government doesn't have these keys. Our families don't have these keys. Parachurch Christian organizations don't have these keys. But the church alone has been given these keys. Which is why we are those who must trust in the power of God's word is it is preached by pastors whom God has called. And as it is seen through Christ's sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and as it is practiced in our church through discipline. Again, it's why Reformed churches say the marks of a true church, the right preaching of the Word, the right practice of the sacraments, and the, and the right carrying out of church discipline. So we may live in a day where churches are not seen as essential, but this is why local churches are essential until Jesus returns at the end of this age, because the keys have been entrusted to us. And while individual churches may close for various reasons under God's providence, Christ's promise to his church will be carried out. As these keys are used by Christ's church. You see then that our church membership may be moved or may be transferred. But we cannot lose our confidence in Christ 
or neglect assembling together with His church in love for one another with the love we have first received from Him. Because Christ has died for His church in love. And it's to His church that He promises the keys as He is building His church. And the gates of hell or the gates of Hades will not prevail. So let's bring these two parts together again as an encouragement to our souls. Because we confess Christ, may our confidence in Him endure. That's my prayer for us as a church in the midst of these difficult days and these hard decisions. And because we confess Christ, may our confidence in Him endure. Many of you know how much I love the ministry of J.C. Ryle, that great English Anglican of the past. But listen to these words from Ryle as he comments on these verses in Matthew's Gospel. Ryle writes, The power of Satan shall never destroy the people of Christ. He that brought sin and death into the first creation by tempting Eve shall never bring ruin on the new creation by overthrowing believers. The mystical body of Christ shall never perish or decay. Though often persecuted, afflicted, distressed, and brought low, it shall never come to an end. It shall outlive the wrath of pharaohs and Roman emperors. Visible churches like Ephesus may come to nothing. But the true church never dies. Like the bush that Moses saw, it may burn but shall not be consumed. And every member of it shall be brought safe to glory. In spite of falls, failures, and shortcomings, in spite of the world, the flesh, and the devil, no member of the true church shall ever be cast away. This, then, is our confidence in Christ. And it's with this confidence, then, I can continue as your pastor through whatever the upcoming months may bring. As we continue to wrestle over our future, as we move forward together as a church, I ask them that you will join me in sharing this confidence in Christ. See, since Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, our confidence is found in Him and in His promise to the church that He loves and gave His life for. So whatever may happen to this local assembly, may this confidence Endure. Because Christ is at work building His church. And every single one of us who have this confession of faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, will be carried through to the very end, to where we will hear those welcome words of Christ, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. It is then with this confidence that we continue, and it's with this confidence that the church has continued through the centuries as they have passed on this confession of Jesus Christ to us through the preaching of the gospel. One example most of us here are already familiar with, but Martin Luther, right? Luther would not recant. He, he, he would not turn away from his confession of Christ and of the gospel of Christ. What did that mean for Luther? And then being declared a heretic and kicked out of the church. 
It meant having to run for his life. It meant much suffering and opposition as false teachers and radical reformers tried to teach and preach other Jesuses. Yet Luther never recanted his confession of Christ and his confidence in Christ endured. And you know, one of the beautiful ways we see this is in the hymns that he wrote, including a hymn that many of us love, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The confidence of Luther as he sings these truths. Listen to the final verse of A Mighty Fortress. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. This is our confidence. This is our encouragement. May this then be our confession. Let's pray. Oh, Father, whatever burdens we may be carrying this morning, whatever struggles our, our, our souls may face, may they be taken away by the grace of Christ and His promise to His church. May we continue to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and believe in His ministry and sacrifice of death for us. And may this then lead us to having the confidence we need to continue to guide us in the upcoming months and years as the church, whatever lies ahead for Cornerstone Fellowship Church. So, Father, we pray for all these things then in the name of Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Amen.